Mentally Unscripted, Episode 35. Will Bill Gates' prescription for avoiding a climate disaster give too much power to the government? Hello and welcome back to Mentally Unscripted, the podcast that's devoted to helping you improve your thinking. Today we're going to be talking about a book review. We're going to be doing How to Avoid a Climate Disaster by Bill Gates. As always, I am Paul and I'm here with Scott. Scott, how are you today? Not bad. Been a little distracted lately though, so I haven't been as focused on the podcast and my blog, which is a uh, Strength and Reason. You can find it at strengthandreason.com. I've mentioned on the podcast that I'm an attorney and I haven't practiced for a while. My jobs when I was at the Department of Labor and Health and Human Services, you know, they didn't require me to be an attorney, though most of the people who were working in that position, I was an investigator, civil rights investigator. Uh, most of us were attorneys. Technically, I wasn't a practicing attorney while I was there. Then when I left in 2019, I decided to focus on my blog, Strength and Reason, strengthandreason.com. And then later we added on the Mentally Unscripted podcast. So I wasn't doing anything law related. But I don't know if anybody's heard, but there's this thing called COVID that started up like in 2020. I've heard a little bit about it. <laughs> yeah. So the, the COVID pandemic, it showed me a side of the world that I didn't know it had existed. Uh, showed me that, I mean, there's good people out there, good intelligent people out there who are confused and maybe need some help making sense of the world. Not just about COVID, but a lot of the stuff that they hear coming from corporate media and from the politicians. And unfortunately, from Hollywood, I don't know why actors feel like they need to chime in on everything, but they do. I felt like people needed help understanding what was going on because they see contradictions, questionable information floating around out there. So not only do they need help understanding, but they also need help having discussions with others about a lot of this stuff. We've seen over the last year, there's just not a lot of discourse going on. There's a lot of arguing, a lot of canceling, a lot of jumping to conclusions, but not a lot of talking. So anyway, to get back to the lawyer thing, I joined the Libertarian Party this year because I didn't like what I was seeing about COVID. Uh, I'm not really, as we mentioned before, not a fan of politics or politicians. And I was always what they call a small L libertarian, meaning I find common ground with that libertarian message, but I never thought the Libertarian political party would be the solution to the problems. But when I saw the steady move toward, I don't know what you would call it, the only thing I can think of is authoritarianism based on COVID, I decided to join the LP and get a little involved. I still don't think the Libertarian Party is the solution to the problem, but I think being involved in the party can help to make a bigger impact, get the message out, and help me help more people. So anyway, when I joined the LP here in Colorado and people started finding out that I had a law degree, even though I wasn't practicing, they started asking me legal questions. The questions were on a pretty wide range of topics, but COVID was a big one, especially how to get the exemptions, get the religious or medical exemptions from the vaccines. I also started to see some of the misinformation that even people in the Libertarian Party who pride themselves on being critical thinkers and understanding situations, even they had a lot of misinformation about what employers were legally allowed to do and not do. I decided to get back into practicing law. I know that was really long. TLDR, I decided to get back into practicing law. So now along with Mentally Unscripted and my blog, Strength and Reason, right, I'm trying to focus on helping people. So the good news, though, is that Mentally Unscripted is growing. Yeah. We don't say it often enough, but our growth is because of our listeners. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. The reality is, is if you, our listeners, didn't make the commitment to listen to us every week and learn how to look at the world with a critical eye, our show would be nothing. We don't have very many haters yet, but we have some, and, and I'm, I'm sure more are coming. So I just want to say, I mean, we don't care about the haters, the critics, and the naysayers. We care about the people who are willing to come here and listen to us every week. 
you know, and you folks, you're the ones who decided to give us a chance as we got this podcasting thing figured out and we still don't have it figured out from technical difficulties when you can barely hear us to the volumes fading in and out and to trying to get the content and the format dialed in. I mean, we're just two guys trying to do this on our own who are not engineers or anything. So just wanted to thank you, all of our listeners. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. I think this is going to be a fun episode for you to jump in on. So let's get out there and solve the climate issue. Uh, yes. Yes. Well, well, congratulations on all the uh, the work there. I think it's exciting that you're going to be helping out the Libertarian Party, trying to figure out some of the legal challenges uh, that they have questions about. And just always starting a new venture is exciting. So I wish you the best of luck with that. And with that, you're right. Let's, let's talk about the climate disaster or how to avoid a climate disaster by Bill Gates. So That's assuming there is a climate disaster. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So the way we should ask this before we get into any of it, so if, if people just are bored and they want to tune out already, would you recommend this book to your five closest friends? No, I would not. You would not. Okay. I hate to hedge this, but it would really depend on the friend. Yeah. But I think my friends would be looking more for a technical look at climate change, the reasons supporting climate change, the reasons against climate change. And this book doesn't do that. This book, it comes in assuming that the climate catastrophe is on the horizon. He doesn't anticipate it as quite as soon as AOC does. Bill Gates in this book was saying by about 2050, Mm -hmm. um, we need to be at net zero emissions. And he was saying we need to really start now, but we've got time to get there, but we need to get started now is his basic premise. So you had a thumbs down on recommending it to the people. Like I said, I mean, if someone is just interested in hearing about green energy technologies on the horizon, it's pretty interesting from that standpoint, because he does a good job going through and explaining that. But like I said, if you wanted to get a good overview of the arguments for and against climate change, this is not the book for you. I think I agree with you, although I'm going to give it a thumbs up for recommending to people. And my, my rationale was a little bit different. I think for most of the people I know that are very concerned about climate change, many of them uh, have a belief that man is causing climate change and that we can change it. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about those two thoughts or beliefs. When I ask them what we need to do to change it, they are completely adrift. They have no idea. And what I saw in this book was that I felt like it was written for those people, those people that agree with Bill that the climate is a disaster. I mean, he even listed in its title, it's a disaster and they want to change things, but they are really not very clued in to the actual cost, not just in terms of investment, but in terms of what humans have to do to change to do that. And so the person that says, well, I really want to care about the environment, I bought a Tesla. And then you have to ask, well, did you look at everything else in your house that isn't green? Well, that's overwhelming. And it is. It is exactly that. And I think he does a nice job of that. So the reason I thought I would recommend it to a lot of people, not everybody, but most people, is that next time you want to have a conversation about the environment and you want to tell me that we have to do set up windmills and send up solar panels across the country, and then we're going to be done you're going to read this book and realize that is the furthest thing from the truth. And so I like that. Uh, to me, it was it was a nice way for people that uh, I would say many are on the left can start to question some of their assumptions because in some ways it comes from the authority figure that they, that they hold up high, at least prior to him coming out as having all of the issues at Microsoft for being a sexual predator and then of course being linked to Epstein. So I, I actually got a little disappointed when those truths came out Not that they shouldn't come out because he should get his commitments, but because uh, an otherwise good message for people that want to change things, I think is tarred. So you can hear already 
listeners out there that we have a disagreement on whether or not we would recommend the book. And I think that's great. Why don't we talk a little bit about how the book is organized? We're going to talk a little bit then about what we would review and how we thought about it. And then at the end, come in with some some of our critiques. Okay. How is this book organized, which comes in a couple hundred pages? Well, as Scott mentioned, Bill sort of goes into the idea that climate change is here. He's not going to go into all the science behind defending the idea that climate change. So he assumes that you believe that this already occurs. So he doesn't do a lot of discussion or a lot of evidence-based information. He doesn't provide that. What he does do is he assumes that we have carbon. Carbon is changing the atmosphere and that we're going to have to get it to zero in order for us to, to sustain and thrive. So he talks about the beginning, that. Then he talks about, well, if we're going to make changes to our environment, how do we actually evaluate those changes? And he has five questions, which again, I kind of like this framework. One question is how much of the 51 billion tons of carbon out there are we talking about if you're going to make a change? The next question is what's the plan for cement? Which he really means to say is there's all of this carbon out there from not just from cars or from energy, but it's how we make stuff. It's how we consume stuff. What are we doing about all of it? The next question is, how much power are we talking about? Was actually changed to, to uh, make this change? How much space do we need, physical space? And how much is it going to cost? So those are the five questions. He says, anytime someone says they're going to make a recommendation for dealing with carbon, those are the questions he wants to ask. And that allows him to put together a comparison. And the last point that he brings up is this idea of green premium which is basically the cost of using an alternative, a, a relatively green premium, such as like solar relative to fossil fuels. The solar is going to have a, a green premium for being green. It's, it's usually more expensive. His whole idea is that technology and investments need to bring those green premiums down in order for us to be able to consume at the relatively same level of consumption but at a lower cost and greener technology. Okay. So that's how he sets up the first third of the book. Then the next part, he goes into where the carbon comes from. So he talks about how we plug in, where we get our energy, how we make things, how we grow things, how we move around transportation, and then how do we stay cool and stay warm. So he breaks those five sections into the areas because he says that's where we get most of the carbon. That's kind of the holistic view. And he, he, outlines within each of those the uh, where the carbon's coming from today and what are some potential solutions. So he, he may talk about ways of having new different types of green biofuel. And when he talks about how do we plug in, he talks about the different energy sources. He, he goes into the benefits and the drawbacks of wind and solar. He talks about fusion and fission and what it would take to actually make those productive. And then I thought some of the, the, the best material here was when he talks about how do we make things. I mean, he does go into a lot of information about cement and the challenge of making things with arc furnaces that are not powered by coal or some other kind of high density energy and how that's a real problem. He has a brief chapter on the big emphasis on the third world, how they're going to be impacted by changes in the climate. And then the last part of it is really what he considers solutions. So what is he actually recommending that we do to change? And obviously, as you would expect, a lot of it comes into more what the government can do to create incentives and do investments. He also talks about local governments. So what I just mentioned was more at the federal level. And he talks about local governments and he talks about citizens and businesses. And I would sum that up is mostly we need to get better innovation. We need to have new laws, things like being able to price carbon, have carbon metrics, have clean energy standards. So we, we have some new laws there. And then we need people to adopt these new technologies. But ultimately, and there's several lines in the book, he makes this a story about innovation and how the fact that 
if we don't have innovation, we don't have more energy. We need more energy, not less. The innovation has to be there for that to happen, for it to be green. And I think that's a, a high level, two, three minute summary of how the book is organized. Scott, did I miss any big picture items in terms of the organization of the book? No, I think you nailed it. I agree with you. The book is really focused on innovation. And that's one of the best things about the book is that he is saying, listen, we can't knock ourselves back to the stone age. We're going to keep using energy and we're going to keep using more energy because we've got populations in third world countries that are growing and we want to lift them out of poverty. And we can't do that by telling them that they can't industrialize and use energy. So we need to come up with ways to accommodate our energy usage in the future. The other thing I really liked was his focus on the green premium. That was really good. Giving people an idea of how much extra it would cost right now to go green. It was a great way to present the information. I wish he would have done more to present how much it would cost to come up with the innovations or the new technologies. Mm-hmm. But you know, maybe that's too hard. I don't know. Maybe it's too far in the future and he would be guessing. So he didn't do that. But one thing you have to consider is the opportunity costs. If we're going to put a bunch of money into a particular area, like developing carbon-free cement process, is there something better out there so that we stop building with cement, but some other material? Would that money that we'd be, be putting into the carbon-free cement, would that be better used You know, helping people get out of poverty or pay their rent? He doesn't talk a lot about that. But I do like that he focuses on the green premium. And I do also like, he didn't do this a lot, but I think towards the end of the book, he mentioned this is that we have to be careful on what we focus on. We can't jump at the shiny object right now, because if we put too much into that, that could hamper our efforts later on to get to the better, more efficient technology. And that's where I see that he really differs from a lot of the politicians and a lot of the activist rhetoric is that, hey, listen, the world's not going to explode in the next five years. We're not going to all die in a fiery pit of flaming carbon in the next five years. So we need to take the time to figure out the best technologies now and start working on that rather than jumping the gun at any old solution that comes along because we could end up hampering our ability later on to implement the better, the best solution. And I'll add to that. One of the statements that came out was the government cannot pick the winners and losers. His litmus test, does it reduce carbon? If it does, then it's good. And I think simplistically, you could say, well, that doesn't really do much. But in the era of choosing one energy over the other, and you see this routinely, and there's many examples that we could talk about, Germany choosing uh, wind and solar over nuclear, Holland doing something similar. England just chose, I think within the last year, to build up their wind farms offshore. The government is making choices about what the right energy process is, and it's excluding the private markets. And he tries to walk a fine line in this book. I wouldn't say he does a perfect job. My criticism at the end, and I really do want to take the time to dig into that, is that he paints an overly naive view of how the politics works. And so there's a question of, are we even solving the right problem, assuming that we, we buy into the premise that A, humans are causing climate change, B, we, we can reverse it. A lot of what this book is about is more of talking about as if this is a technology challenge. And he's honest about that. He says, I'm a technologist. That makes me an optimist. I think that technology can change how we operate and that if we invest correctly and sensibly, we can create the technology we need to decarbonize our world. However, If you look at a lot of the challenges that we have in the country, it has very little, I would argue, not just our country, but globally, when we talk about this topic, it has very little to do with the innovation gaps 
and it has much more to do with the political gaps. I think the book could have done a better job of talking about what is really the other giant benefit of some of these energy sources if they actually are able to create more energy from less. And that is this idea of security. He doesn't talk about that because it's considered more of a right-wing idea, this idea of nationalism and countries want to protect themselves. But when you look at where energy is sourced today primarily, and I realize that's only one of the five table legs, it's primarily in areas that we have conflict with. So a good example is that you have Russia, which is providing gas into Europe to heat all of Europe, and they have different views of what democracy needs to look like and how they want to operate with their citizens. And there's many examples of Russia using this energy source as a bargaining chip to get more concessions from Europe and preventing them from perhaps getting engaged when it wants to go into Georgia or it wants to go into Ukraine. There's a political element here. It's great to talk about innovation solutions and it's great to talk about technology, but if you're not honest about those political realities, I think you're missing a big part of the problem. Okay. So I think we've kind of summarized what the book is. We've talked about some of the things we like. We thought a little bit about how do we evaluate a nonfiction book and talk about whether or not it's something we would recommend or not? And we have a couple of questions and we're going to go through those and then spend the bulk of our time going through some of the criticism we have. So the first question that we had was, does the book's title accurately reflect its contents? And the book's title is How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, The Solutions We Have and the Breakthroughs We Need. So Scott, do you think that the book does a good job of doing that? I couldn't have thought of a better title to explain what's in the book. Like we mentioned in the beginning, the book already assumes that a climate disaster is in our near future, and it goes through essentially the technologies that are on the horizon that can help us avoid that disaster. I completely agree. All right. So the more relevant question is, does the book materially add to the ongoing conversation in a meaningful way? So here we're talking about the conversation on climate disaster and climate change. I think we've touched on some of the things we liked, which would suggest that we do think that there's some benefit coming from this book, either from the from the simplistic prose, because it's written at kind of a fifth grade level, and the organization it has a framework, it has a way in which you can evaluate different green solutions through the five questions I mentioned earlier. And it has this idea of green premium, which I also think is a pretty good, useful tool. So I think I would say, yeah, I think it has some meaningful concepts. It's possible that a lot of other books have touched on it. Maybe he summarizes it. What's your take? I agree. I especially like the five questions. If I took one thing at, out of this book, and for the, the critical thinkers, which I think is most people listening to this, if you're at the bookstore and you're not interested in reading this book, just grab it and find those five questions because those were really good. And then the five questions that he asks when evaluating an innovation to see if it would be worthwhile, I, I guess, essentially is the best way to characterize it. And that's a really good framework. And like you said, the book is well-organized. He walks through everything. So yeah, I mean, I think it does add to the conversation. So again, if you're coming in assuming that this is an issue that needs to be addressed, and I'm not saying it is or it isn't, I'm just saying you have to assume that it is coming in. He goes through all the different categories of technologies, where we stand with them now, how they might help us in the future, the hurdles we have to get over to bring that green premium down to zero or preferably negative so that it's cheaper to go with the green energy than it is with the fossil fuels or the current solutions. So from that standpoint, yeah, it's great. I think he put a lot of information into one place. He explained it very simply. So for people who want more information, they can go out and research it on their own. I completely agree. So then another question that we have is, 
does the book cover an important issue? And this one's a little tricky in my mind because yes, I would argue if you completely buy into the thesis that we are going to die in a heat death by 2050, then there's there's no other topic that's top of mind really. So then the answer is obviously yes. I think if there's debates about the causes of changes in the climate or how we can actually address them or the right ways to be addressing them, it's less so. And then I think that there's other context here that is relevant to me when I think about energy security and then also a broader horizon for humans where I think about interplanetary space travel. Well, why is that relevant? Well, ultimately, innovation technology is about the future. And the future can't just be about survival. It has to be about thriving. And I feel as though it's hard to argue that we're not going to be an interplanetary species at some point or that we don't want to be. And that any work that we're doing on energy and how we create and what we, you know, how we, we eat and feed ourselves should be around how do we change and build that technology. This book doesn't have that. But I guess at the end of the day, I would say yes, because this topic is always top of mind. Everyone wants to talk about whether or not you're a good or bad savior of the planet. I would say yes, this is talking about an important issue. Thoughts? Yeah, definitely. No matter what you think of the climate change science, this is something that, like you said, it's going to be talked about a lot. Did you see the Project Veritas thing with the CNN producer or whatever? Go watch it. I'll find it and put a link in the show notes. But if my understanding is correct, it was some woman who was posing as a potential love interest for this CNN producer or something. And she got him on tape talking about how they were really pushing COVID and the COVID panic to help get Trump out of office, but that people were now becoming tired of COVID and they were starting to tune it out. So that climate emergency, I think is, he may have used that term, was the next big panic button on the list and that they were going to really start pushing that. And I know there's a lot of people out there who think part of the Great Reset, like if you buy into that, that's going to be one of their next big things is really pushing the climate emergency. And I'm saying that because I'll put a link to this in the show notes too, is Scientific American and some other media publications have agreed to change the wording from climate change to climate emergency. They're already pumping up the panic around this. So I'll put a link to, to a couple articles about that in the show notes as well. So you're right. This is going to be something that's not going to go away. This is a book that you can read it to get an idea of where we are in the technology space, what innovations are on the horizon. One thing too, I just want to point out is we've poked fun at the 2050 date a couple times. He wasn't saying we're all going to die by 2050. I think he was just saying 2050 is the tipping point. We need to be well on our way by 2050. So I guess that means maybe we'll all die by 2052. <laughs> well, that's okay, because I'm hoping to be off the rock by 2051. So I'm, I'm okay with that, with those dates. It's two more Super Bowls we get. So, hey. Hey, there we go. There we go. Okay. So the next two questions, I think, are where our main criticisms come in. So the first is, are the arguments well-constructed? And the next is, are the arguments persuasive? On the first one, are the arguments well-constructed? Well, in some ways, the book doesn't have a lot of arguments, or it's not trying to present an argument. It's more of a description of where we are. I talked about sort of the three sections of the book. The first is more of, again, assumption about carbon, and it does try to make an argument that we have to get to zero. And that the reason we have to get to zero is that we'll most likely never get to zero, but by trying to move in that direction, we will improve the planet. That is based on the assumption that the two that we talked about earlier on, that humans are the primary cause of anthropogenic change. I think that's the term for human cause climate change, and that we can actually change it. 
And there's different ways you could look at that argument. One could be that the climate is just changing. It's going to get really, really hot. And we had no cause of it, but we want to actually be able to manipulate the environment. And we that our future is going to be on manipulating the environment because historical patterns have shown us that the climate will be inhospitable at some point. And then you could take that further and say, well, if we can manipulate our climate, it's possible we can be manipulating climates in other planets and in other areas. And all of that could be good. That could be a different argument, but he's not making that. He's, he's making the argument that the that we have to get to zero because otherwise, you know, by 2052, after two more Super Bowls, everything is going to be bad. So that is kind of the start of the book. The middle part of it with the innovations and technologies, he doesn't spend a lot of time. There aren't a lot of arguments there. It's more of a description of where we are in different innovation cycles. And then at the end of the book, he makes what I think are light arguments, recommendations about what we can do at the various levels I mentioned, the government, the business, and the individual. And I would say that those arguments, particularly at the end of the book, are not very well argued. Again, it's it's implied that you care, if you're reading this book, that you care about the environment. It's almost like you're looking for direction. And he's trying to provide that. And I think that they're a little weak. Uh, so I said maybe. maybe. Maybe there's some argumentation here. Scott, what was your take on whether or not the arguments were well constructed in this book? I said no, primarily because there are very few arguments. When I look at what's propaganda, what is just information, I try to look at it from the standpoint of, are they trying to tell you how something is? Or are they trying to say, this is evidence for one side, this is evidence for the other side? Even if they're telling you we support this side and that side, right? They're still giving you the arguments for the other side. And this book didn't really do that. Like I said, it, it would have been great if, you know, maybe even if he just had a paragraph or not a paragraph, a chapter at the beginning saying, here's all the evidence supporting this conclusion that climate change is real and that we can do something about it. And, you know, here's some of the noted problems with that science, but he didn't do that. I would have liked to have seen that, but I get that his target maybe are people who aren't going to really be interested in that. By the way, there's a good book called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change. I'll put a link to it in the notes. If you want to see some critiques of the current science, that's a pretty good book. And again, we're not endorsing either side of this. I'm not a climate scientist, but I think it's important to know where maybe some of the holes or some of the faults are being found in the science, or more importantly, how the science is being reported by the media. That's one of the big areas, because you can't always trust that the media is reporting the science to you accurately. I want to detour off of this a little bit, because what you just said is part of the original, sort of your monologue at the beginning, we were talking a little bit about what you've seen in the last two years with COVID and this sort of shutdown of discussion. One of the terrible aspects, features, whatever you want to call it, that we've seen in the last 18 months to two years is a default to some people wanting to find the authority figure that's going to be able to tell them the, the answer and then be able to react to that. And then assuming that what that person shares is authentic, accurate, well conceived and beneficial to you as the individual. And I think a lot of that comes down to a, a fear of the unknown, a fear of being unhealthy. But the problem with that is that the person that is sharing that information, that authority, you don't necessarily understand what their motives and incentives are. and You don't necessarily understand what their expectations are. And so if you're listening to a single person, let's say Bill Gates, or you're listening to the other news to talk about climate science, and what we need to do to change it, and you just say, well, I found one authority and I'm done, you can go down a very destructive path. They can lead you down a very destructive path. And I know we're going to talk about that more. When they start talking about where we need to invest, the sacrifices that we need to make, how we need to react. And so it's important 
And it, it comes back, it's incumbent on, on you listener to say, listen, I'm not going to be a climate scientist. Neither Scott nor I are, are climate scientists, but we're going to be educated enough to be able to ask questions, to be informed about the different parts of the arguments. And why I think that we, we need to be asking these questions is that unlike many other topics that are, you're going to hear about, this is going to have a direct impact on your life. It's going to have an impact on your checking account. It's going to have an impact on your ability to finance aspects of your life. It's going to have an impact on your, your ability to move and freedom, the products and services that you're going to buy. It's going to touch everything because it's a grand narrative. And so being informed, being able to ask better questions. And then you know, one thing that Bill does talk about is vote for people that are going to support these initiatives. Well, I would argue that you need to be looking for people that are thinking with a clear mind. And when they are voting on how to look at the environment, and how to think about some of this technology that they're doing it in a productive way. Uh, not just saying, oh, we need to reduce carbon by some date and we'll do anything to achieve it, but being more thoughtful and mindful about the technology, about the cost, about what we're giving up when we make these investments. I just wanted to put in that little diet, not a diatribe, my little monologue, my little soapbox that I, I think this is of all the issues that we can talk about, COVID obviously is front of mind. It, it will at some point disappear. The climate discussion, I don't think is going to go away for a long time. So we talked a little bit about are the arguments well constructed, kind of a no maybe and probably leaning more to no. There aren't a lot of arguments here. But the next question is, are the arguments persuasive? I think we can take a layer back and say, you know, what's missing from the book? What elements is he not necessarily including? And this is where I think our critiques can come in. So maybe you can share a little bit about that. Even with the, the lack of arguments, did you feel like what he had in there was persuasive, the information he shared? To get a copy of today's show notes and links to the resources mentioned in today's episode, go to mentallyunscripted.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for the Mentally Unscripted newsletter so you'll be the first to know about the new episodes and get bonus material not available anywhere else. That's mentallyunscripted.com. No, the book was intended more to be a description of the innovations that we're looking at right now and the impact they can have. But he left out a lot, especially about possible unintended consequences. He left out a lot about, I think, factors that we just need to consider that he didn't mention. One thing, all the stuff that I bring up here, I've got some source material for, so I'll put links to all of this in the show notes. And some of these sources are actual source materials, actual studies, and some of these sources are just articles discussing the studies. So you folks out there listening will have to go look at the source material if you want to get deeper into it. But biggest thing to me is that he did not mention the U.S. military. And I understand that the book wasn't necessarily about changing our current behaviors, but his failure to mention how much the military is responsible for polluting, I think is a huge hole. Whenever I hear anybody bring up climate change and what we have to do to fight it, if they're not mentioning the U.S. military, I think they're already starting off in a slightly less credible position with me. Some research was done, I believe this was in 2019, and they were looking at 2017 data, but the U.S. military was actually a bigger polluter than 140 countries in the world. Think about that for a second. There's 140 countries that don't pollute as bad as the U.S. military does. So one thing right there is maybe let's stop the U.S. war machine, get out of all the Middle East and all these countries, stop policing the world. And just that activity alone, I think, would have a profound impact on the amount 
amount of emissions that we're putting into the atmosphere. And to completely ignore that was questionable to me. It's interesting that you bring up the military because one of the challenges I have with the, these narratives is that it's possible that in 50 years or, or you know, let's say 1950, it's 30 years out, that we have an environment that we can no longer adapt to because of changes that we're making today. So the impacts are way down the road. And yet we're expected or asked to have wartime thinking. And what do I mean by wartime thinking? Well, I think of as a nation, what we had to do in World War II and World War One where you you expect a command and control type of process. You have unification of your society behind a, a single movement. You have sacrifices that are made at home. That And all of that is expected to go away once you're in peacetime. So there's a different mindset that occurs. And in some ways, when you read about the cataclysmic future under this climate disaster, you would think to myself, my gosh, we should be in wartime thinking to solve this problem. And yet, in a lot of ways, as you said, we're not talking about having to pull back the military. You don't find nations saying, well, listen, we really want to go to war and conflict sounds good, except for the fact that if we do that, we're going to make the climate even worse. And that's not good. I mean, as we're talking about this, we, we saw the United States withdraw from Afghanistan. You're seeing conversations already about how Russia and China are going to move into those territories. You see saber rattling between China and India, China and Taiwan. And those same countries are talking about how important it is to improve the climate, which to me means that no one's really operating in a wartime environment. They're not really giving this a lot of credibility, but they're, but at the same time, they're still asking for some sacrifices from some people. So there seems to be a mismatch there that even if the US military comes down on its pollution and its impact on the environment, is that just going to be taken up by another country? Not to say that we shouldn't do it. I'm putting out the point there that that's something that, again, goes back to the political realities of any of these solutions that I don't think he did a good job focusing on at all. He just assumed these complexities away. There's a growing mindset out there that this idea that the rules are for thee, but not for me. So we have the politicians telling us that we all have to cut back, but we're going to continue rolling the war machine throughout the world and letting our cronies in the military industrial complex profit from that while... Elizabeth Warren is complaining about the energy usage from Bitcoin. Well, you know, sorry, Elizabeth, you're in Congress. You can do a little bit better than that. Don't complain about what we're doing, especially when you're part of the organization with, that's got the fiscal policy that is creating inflation and causing people to want to run to an inflation hedge like Bitcoin when you can start, like you said, rattle your saber, but against the war machine, right? If you're so concerned about the environment, then start talking about getting some of these conflict stopped. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're in agreement there that that part of the argument is completely missing. Perhaps they put some of that in his five buckets of, you know, where we get energy and how we we build things, but it feels disingenuous. It feels like it lacks some oomph and it becomes less persuasive in my book or at least in my way of thinking. And I think he probably included it under the how we get around and how we make things categories, but it's such a big category to not acknowledge it. I think he mentioned the Department of Defense once in passing about how they could use better fuels for their ships and airplanes or something. But other than that, I don't think he mentioned it at all. Here is where I, I continue to struggle with some of that line of reasoning that as a military, are you most concerned with your pollution? Or are you most concerned with your effectiveness and lethalness? Are we going to convert our bullets over to green gunpowder 
that maybe isn't as effective for you know 80% or to some some small percentage of the time. I don't think that's the case. I think what we're optimizing for with the military is for a different outcome. And that's where I struggle with much of this assumption that we're going to make these changes when looking at human behavior and, and there's this assumption like, oh no, we, we want to change it. Well, yeah, some people want to change it, but they don't even understand what is it that they want to change. The same person that buys a Tesla Maybe buying all the products from China, which are made with high density carbon heavy energies. And maybe you're unaware of that. Maybe you're unaware of that truth. But I mean, even building the Tesla battery requires us to mine all of these very rare earth minerals out of the planet, which is expensive. And then you have the waste of those batteries. How do you think through those things? I feel like at, at some level, there's a fundamental disconnect between human behavior and these lofty ideals. Yeah, agreed. And I, I don't think anyone is saying that we have to completely dismantle the military and open the door to any invading force that comes walking along. But I think most people would agree. I know not all would agree, but I think most people would agree that we're, we're maybe overdoing it a bit, a big bit. Just think about how much energy we have to use to get all of our equipment over to the Middle East and our troops over to the Middle East. And then all the equipment that or all the energy we use, moving that equipment around, doing patrols and all the things we're doing. When if we didn't do all of that and we just focused on protecting the country, how much energy would we save? Or at least how much energy could we put to other uses is maybe a better way to look at it. So what's the opportunity cost of doing that? In the last episode on Afghanistan, you know, we talked about the opportunity cost of all the money that we were spending in Afghanistan. But what about the opportunity cost of all the energy that we're putting into it and all the manpower that we're putting into it? Maybe there are people over there who could be over here working on developing the next great solar cell, but we've got them over there running patrols in Afghanistan or something. You know, I don't know. But that's something you always have to consider. Absolutely. No, and 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 to be clear on this point, I completely agree that our investment in defense being troops and carriers and heavy artillery and machinery around the world with bases, that's one way to invest. A different way to invest is a longer term thinking about how do we have energy security how do we have food security? How do we have manufacturing security that is consuming less materials to do to create is more effective? And I guess that's where part of the argument, because Bill, I think, is probably not really of that mindset. He's from what little I understand about him. He's one of these global elitists. They may be from America, the United States, and they may like aspects of America, but they see themselves as a steward of the world. And these borders don't really matter to them. He'd be more than happy to be in a country like China or some other place where speech is restricted because in his mind, his speech would never really be restricted. That's disappointing. And it, but it goes back to this idea like, yeah, we can invest differently in how we use our defense budget, how we use our, our resources to create that security for our citizens, which I think is a big aspect of the book or any discussion on energy that's lacking. And probably maybe one of those conflicts of ideals or morality about where you sit on the left or the right that isn't really summed up well. But okay, so we've talked a little bit about some of our critiques. What are some other critiques that you had after going through this book? One, he's given us the dire prediction. We know that dire predictions are nothing new and people have different incentives for making those dire predictions. You know, one of them is attention, which I know a lot of people are accusing Fauci of now is that he's doing this just because he wants to be on the Sunday news talk shows and all that. There's funding. There's only so much funding to go around and a lot of funding comes from the government. So if you can get the word out there that whatever you're researching is the big crisis that's looming on the horizon, 
you're going to get more money. So you got people out there saber rattling that we need to fix climate change now. Give me money so I can research it. The other is profit. Not much else needs to be said about that. I wanted to point out, looking at COVID, in Moderna's stock price in April of 2020, April 5th of 2020 was $31.86. As of yesterday, September 7th, their stock price was $434.50. Do you think that there wasn't profit in the COVID panic for them? Also, Pfizer's quarter two revenue, $18.98 billion, up from last year's quarter two revenue of $9.86 billion. And COVID vaccine brought in $7.84 billion. And their profits are expected to go up even more after FDA approval of their vaccine. There's a profit incentive here. And Bill Gates has mentioned before that he's making investments in a lot of these companies that he's talking about. And he was open about some of the investments that he made that didn't work out. But I imagine he he would be pretty happy if a lot of these investments that he made did work out. Just ask yourself, you know, how much of it is him wanting to save the world and how much of it is attention? Uh, he doesn't really have to worry about funding, but profit as well. You have to consider it. And I don't know Bill Gates. Maybe he's the most altruistic person in the world. I don't know. He forced Windows on us, so he can't be that altruistic. <laughs> Windows 95. I remember that. Absolutely. The book's recommendations at the end where it talks about the investment by the government is primarily this idea that we just need more research. We need more fundamental and applied. Fundamental is this idea of going after these moonshot ideas and developing uh, testing them, them out uh, so that we, we start to have enough of an idea that then the private sector could pick up and start to invest in. And so think about the fundamental as being more of the high risk, high reward. A company could never actually put it on their balance sheet because it'd just be too high risk. That's conceptually, I think, what he describes. Applied is where you take these ideas and you actually start to develop them into market-ready concepts that would then again be picked up by the private sector. And so he argues that the federal government is incented, or it's, it's well positioned to provide the incentives for that additional research. He uses the NIH as an example because of all the work that they've done with vaccines. Good timing, I suppose. And he's saying that we can get more accomplished with the private sector. I'm not convinced. So I'm actually in the camp that says I'm okay with some investment by the government looking at the risks but I struggle conceptually. I can accept that. Then I struggle with the actual implementation of it. If the United States people, the citizens, are funding the government research that is producing these new technologies that then go into a private enterprise that perhaps he's benefiting from, he's capturing the windfall off of the taxes of the entire country. It seems a little disingenuous to be saying, well, we should all be paying more for research. And then, and then he goes on in the book to talk about, oh, well, we all benefit. We all benefit from cleaner water. Yeah, but we're not all benefiting from the profit. I would almost think, well, in this book, maybe he should be talking about how, how do we distribute the profits more evenly for all the people that are going to be using their blood, sweat, and tears to create the profits and all the research. Because it's not just as simple as, well, we just need to put more money towards it. At least it isn't in my book. And I feel like that's a little bit of a letdown. And it's a little it's asking a lot of people to just accept that we just need to put more money into these research. And then again, you can agree with the private sector having a bigger play. And I don't think either of us are necessarily against profit motive. I would consider both of us capitalists, but we're not crony capitalists. We don't like the idea that the government is going to protect certain industries and that they're going to favor others and that they're going to protect the profits of certain companies at the expense of others and other types of innovation. And so th there's a delicate balance there. And I feel like this is where the book 
while it has some ideas, doesn't get into enough grit. It doesn't actually provide enough of a framework. And so I agree with you. You got to understand there's incentives here. I think he could do a better job and people need to be thinking more about this. Again, if you're going to say we're going to invest trillions of dollars into developing these new technologies, well, how are we all benefiting? If the United States citizens are expected to pay more for our energy so that everyone else can have access to these energies, I think that's a high price or high, high watermark. That's effectively what we do with our drugs. Everyone else in the world gets to buy from these companies at a lower price. We pay more. That's the danger of having one source of funding like a government is the government can use that funding to push a particular narrative. There's been reports that the Biden administration has considered withholding funding in various areas to try to get companies and industries to push vaccines on people. So the government on one hand can say, well, it's not us, you know, the private markets or the free markets doing that, but it is the government. So we want to be careful of that. Also, going back to the Moderna and Pfizer profits, if this were a free market innovation and it was clear that the vaccines are the best course for COVID and the government wasn't involved in this at all, and Moderna and Pfizer came up with these vaccines and they're making all this money, hey, great. But that's not what is happening. The government is pushing these vaccines. The government is telling everyone that despite evidence to the contrary, these vaccines are the only way we're going to get out of this. And we don't want that happening in climate change. So, you know, if you got two startups, one's politically connected, but it has an inferior technology, the other one with the superior technology is not politically connected, which one is going to get the money from the government? I guarantee you it's the inefficient politically connected company. Or what could end up happening is the government could fund both of them, even the non-politically connected one, but then the winner out of the two, the government will go back to and say, hey, remember how much funding we gave you early on? You need to start doing favors for us now, which some people have accused Google and Yahoo and some of these other big tech companies of falling into that trap as having taken money from the government early on. And so now the government's got their hooks in them. There's always that danger. And I agree that I think maybe some companies, they wouldn't want to put long-term high-risk R&D projects on their balance sheet, but I think they'd be more than happy to kick money into universities to help research this stuff if they could get some of the profit coming out of it or for public relations. They could say, we spent 10 years researching this. It didn't pan out, but man, we really tried. It didn't work, but we learned a lot that we can use going forward. And I think there's a motivation there. And the good thing about a free market is all of those different companies, they'll have a chance to sell their ideas so that hopefully the best idea will attract the most money and get built up while the inferior ideas won't. That's what we need. I think you're right. I think Gates is onto something that we need to let the private businesses build up these technologies, but he's relying too much on the government. And another thing to consider too is one of the reasons why it costs so much to bring a vaccine to market is because of the government, not just money, but time too. What's the, the it's average like 10 years or so to get a vaccine through or medication through FDA trials in billions of dollars. And I couldn't find it. So don't hold me to this. But I thought I read something recently where they were saying that without the FDA approval process, if you just left it to the companies to do their own trials, their own research, and then you allowed the legal system to operate against companies that cut corners, you could get medications out onto the market in two to three years, far cheaper, not even in the billions of dollars range for a lot of these things, if you just got the government out of the way. And Gates mentions in this book that one of the problems is Sometimes government regulations actually hampers the adoption of these green technologies. He mentioned it with the cement. Some of the building codes would not allow the carbon neutral cement or the green cement 
to get used. You have to consider all that. So on the one hand, yeah, government could be putting money out there into the market to help drive innovation. But on the other hand, how much is the government interference in the market, causing prices to go up and causing what could be good technologies to never get researched because there's too much government bureaucracy in the way? That's all the points that come to mind when I think about someone who says, well, we just need to be throwing money out. And I'm not saying Bill says that. He does put more context into his thoughts. So I will give him credit for that. But something that he should do, which he didn't, is look at the failures of government going after, or basically where when, when government does a bad job. He mentions briefly Solandra, which was a solar-powered company that the Obama administration touted early on as sort of a new investment in energy and ended up being a three, several hundred million dollar boondoggle that went nowhere. And uh, Peter Thiel in his book, Zero to One, mocks that example because he says, as a VC, I look at all of the characteristics of a company like Solandra, and it's clear to me that they were never going to be successful. And the, the simplest one was that the head of the company wore a suit. And people laughed. And go, what, what, what does that have to do with anything? He said, well, when I look at Elon Musk, he's an engineer. The guy hates wearing suits because he wants to sit down and do the work. All of these companies were basically formed by business leaders, professional CEOs that weren't problem solvers. They were used to or at least the problems they were accustomed to dealing with were not engineering problems, which is a lot of what you're dealing with in the space. So there's an issue with selecting the right winners. And there's a gentleman by the name of Michael Schellenberger, who I, I found out about a couple of years ago. He's written a couple of books. He's in Forbes, often writing about energy. He was actually part of many of the projects during the Obama administration, I think maybe working for the Obama administration to try and find these green projects. And he's become a total nuclear proponent. He, he went from saying we need solar and wind and ocean energy and all of these other energies to saying none of those are going to get us close to solving our crisis. We need to be focused on a solution that will actually work. And so he's very well versed in the, in the green space. He talked about the challenges. He's, he's in California. He actually ran for governor and lost as a minority candidate or you know one of the smaller, less known candidates. And he talked about the recent challenges in California with their not having enough baseload power because they are getting rid of their nuclear power plant. They're decommissioning it, which powers about 3 million homes. And they have replaced it with wind and solar, which doesn't have the right baseload. So what they've done instead, which is exactly what happened in Germany, Germany, when they were running out of baseload power, authorized the use of dirty coal so that they could have the energy. And Newsom has authorized the use of burning diesel gasoline. So you look at what's happened in California and they say, we want to go green and we can all sit there and applaud it. And then you see the way they've done it. They've only said that we can ever do solar and wind. They haven't been realistic at all with the rollout. And now we see that we have issues, brownouts, blackouts, then they have fires, which Schellenberger talks, and I'm not going to get into all the details there because I think I'll get several of the relevant details wrong. But he talks about the fact that because they don't have the right energy infrastructure and they're degrading their grid, that they're going to have more of these issues and more of the fires because part of it is they're not investing in land management for actually clearing the ground of dead wood. They have had a bad relationship with the energy provider, which again, is that becomes a political problem because the utility there is seen as either a savior or a villain, and it's used as a way to garner power for the politicians rather than using it as, as a tool to actually achieve their, their aims. And so 
I say all that, and it's kind of a long-winded way of saying we have examples, Germany, California, or or two recent ones where they have decided we're going to go out there and we're going to go green. We're going to invest a lot of money to do it. And when you look at the results a decade on, it is higher energy prices, less energy reliability. And yes, they have gone theoretically greener because they're not producing the same amount of carbon. But when you see the fact that they have to burn coal in Germany and they're now going to be burning diesel, you have to ask, is this a sustainable solution today, let alone in 20 years from now, if your population continues to grow? So it's dangerous to put that much power and expectation into government would be the point, (laughs) sort of the, the, the drawing conclusion I have. That's the danger of the illusion of control is the politicians, they want to be seen as doing something and they know they only have a limited amount of time to do it. So they will implement these knee-jerk policies that end up doing more harm than good. And I think Gates was onto that. I think he knew that was a danger and he was warning against doing that. Now, one of the most controversial points in this entire book, and maybe the most controversial point in this entire book is that he thinks we can go meatless. And he, he wants to recommend the impossible or the beyond burger. I don't know. I have all the things that I read in that book that almost made me want to burn it. Do you want to share your thoughts on, on these two monstrosities? Sure. I'm with you. Uh, that was the one part where I can't believe this. First off, going back to the elitist, the rules are for thee and not for me. I could see Bill Gates still enjoying his steaks and his hamburgers while the rest of us are eating these soy proteinized lecithin filled you know hunks of garbage yeah i started looking into this first off for the folks who don't know to earn a little extra money while i was doing the blog thing over the last couple years i took a job in the meat department of a grocery store that's not too far away from me here and we sold the impossible burgers and the beyond burgers and they sold well we had a lot of people who liked them i never tried them but i asked people how they tasted And not one person, even the people who bought it, told me that they thought they tasted like meat. So I can't say from firsthand experience, but I can tell you from asking people, no one thinks they taste like meat. I looked into these a little bit more. And these meatless burgers, these Beyond Burgers and these uh, Impossible Burgers, they're very highly processed and they're high in saturated fat. And I found post on the Harvard Health blog that basically said that they're a good meat substitute, but they're not necessarily a healthy choice. Not necessarily a healthy choice. So I'll post a link on that. So go read it. I didn't do an exhaustive search, but I looked at about four or five different articles on this and they all really reached the same conclusion that there's a lot of processed stuff in these things. So you've got like some soy protein concentrate, Gundry MD sunflower oil, whatever. I don't know what that is. You know, potato protein, methyl cellulose, cultured dextrose. Soy leg, he- I don't even know what this is, like hemoglo- hemoglobin, like hemoglobin, something like that. You know, mixed tocopherols, zinc gluconate. I don't even know what most of this stuff is. So remember, you're eating this stuff. <laughs> I went and looked up the ingredients of a hamburger and apparently it's just made of beef. Oh, I, really? know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, shocking. Shocking. So this brings up a good point, I think, is that number one, he's not taking in the long-term consequences or the unintended consequences of what eating this stuff will do to our health. Now, I'm not saying to go out there and eat 10 pounds of meat every day. and But I mean, we, we humans, we developed as meat eaters. We have a taste for meat for a reason. So if we go over to these highly processed hockey puck things, I have to wonder what the long-term health effects are. And I don't think anyone really knows. And what are we seeing with COVID? Well, obesity worsens the COVID outcome. 
Okay. I'll have a link with that. 78% of the people hospitalized for COVID were obese. Two thirds of COVID hospitalizations are due to obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and heart failure. It got a bunch of other articles or, or actually I got these, some of these research studies off of PubMed talking about how vitamin D deficiency can worsen the COVID outcome. So the whole thing here is that one of the reasons why I think we could logically draw the conclusion, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to say yes or no to this 100%, but based off of that information, we could draw the conclusion that COVID would not have had as big of an impact on it as it did, but it would have been much smaller than it is had we just been healthier. But on the other hand, we're being told to go out and eat these highly processed hunks of frozen fake meat in order to help climate change. Well, okay, great. Does that mean the next big pandemic that comes through is just going to make everyone sicker? And this is one of the big problems when you focus just on one thing is that the world is a, a hugely complex system. The only more complex system than the earth is the universe. And so you can't look at one thing in isolation without asking, well, how's it going to affect all these other things? So is potentially harming our health, our long-term health, and I'm not saying that Impossible Burgers and Beyond Burgers are going to do that, but we have to consider that. Is harming our long-term health, is that going to put us in a better position? Ask the question. You kind of look like a hippie, Paul. What do you think about the beyond? Yeah, no, well, I'm just kidding. He doesn't I, look like a hippie. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm laughing because back when I was about 10, 11 years old, my mother was sick and she was told that she needed to do mostly a non-meat diet because a lot of the meats that she was consuming had antibiotics and other types of growth hormones, and that was not good for her health. Okay. So- we, we got off of the meat. Obviously, she was making all the food I was eating. Uh, so we got off the meat and we ate a lot of other foods. She did a lot of experimentation during that time. And this was years ago before you had three aisles of alternative foods that were all pre-processed and packaged. And you could just take it home and do a veggie burger. And now, you know, you've got these Beyond Burgers and Possible Burgers. And I came to the conclusion after we did experimenting with all these different types of soy patties and veggie patties. I said, listen, if you want a burger, you eat a burger. If you want a burger, but you don't want to deal with the all the stuff that comes with the burger, eat vegetables. It's really that simple. Don't don't try and do this artificial imitation, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I hear that they use beetroot juice to try and make it have blood. And I'm thinking, no, 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 just don't do it. I mean, it would have been easier for him to say, listen, we need more vegetarians in the world. I'll sponsor a billion people to be vegetarians. I, I would have gone with that. But this idea that you should just replace Especially, it's 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 different than replacing energy in some respects because when you plug your 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 phone into the wall, you get the energy. When you taste this, you go, "Wow, this is different." And I'm almost laughing beyond an impossible burger. You know, it's like beyond an impossible meat. It's never going to happen. So I think all the points you made are important. But just the, my history here, I, I would definitely not vote that we should all do that. I have to call you out for a little bit of fake news there. According to the ingredient list that I found when I was doing my research, it's beet juice extract. Oh, okay. Well, that makes it totally different. I, I apologize for spreading f fake news. I hope uh, the social media censors can can make sure that they crack down hard. And apparently, um, some of the oils that they put in there are to make it sizzle like a hamburger when you throw it in a, a frying pan. Uh, just remember, you know, we've got all these people saying, "How can we make broccoli taste like meat?" Have you ever heard anybody say, "How can I make this hamburger taste more like broccoli?" Yeah, exactly. If that tells you anything, it's that we have a taste for meat. We have yes. a taste for meat for a reason. Oh, boy. All right. So I think we've done a pretty good job reviewing this book and giving sort of the pros and cons. After discussing it, have you changed your opinion? Would you recommend it to anybody? Did anything come out of this conversation that changed your mind? 
No. I mean, if somebody is interested in green technologies and what is being worked on right now, I, I could recommend it for that. But for just general knowledge on the climate change debate, I, I wouldn't recommend it. I think I'm in the same boat. I haven't really changed my mind. I would recommend it to get people to think more about policies next time you're going to, if you're going to default, if you agree with this, this uh, if your belief is that we're definitely dealing with climate change, we have to do something about it, then I want you to read this book and ask yourself, well, where are we going to focus our effort? And I'll leave with this because I, I do think it's really important. He, we talk about well, the 80-20 principle, right? So it's it's where you find leverage. You can focus on the 20% that creates 80% of the outcome. Now, if you look at the discussions about green tech, it's all about energy, plugging in, electricity. Well, according to this book, making things, which includes cement, steel, and plastic, they're actually 31% in the highest creation of greenhouse gases. So it's it's how we make things that's even a bigger impact than how we plug things in. And yet you rarely, if ever, hear about that. It's always about how we're plugging things in. And by the way, growing things, plants and animals, they're at 20%, 19%. They're still really big. So we need to be mindful. If we're being asked to make changes and make sacrifices, we need honest conversations. And then, of course, obviously, as, as Scott's saying, we need to have honest debates about whether or not we need to make the changes in the first place. I think that will conclude our review of How to Avoid a Climate Disaster by Bill Gates. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We, uh, Scott, start off the episode uh, with, we appreciate every single one of you listening here and providing your feedback to us wherever you're listening, if it's on Spotify, if it's on Apple, iTunes, if it's on Stitcher, or if it's on uh, any, any of the video platforms like Audacity or Odyssey. Uh, we love interacting with you and we love hearing your feedback. We hope you enjoy this as, as much as we do. Take care and until next time, be good and we'll, we'll be in touch soon.